Section 27 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melanie Young. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rotwheeler. Botany. Chapter 7. Physiology of Plants. Every living organism has the power of producing offspring which inherit the characteristics of the parent stock, says Pfeffer in his Physiology of Plants. The fact that the acorn always produces an oak, a fungus spore the same specific fungus, is sufficient proof that it is the inherent properties of the living substance of the embryonic organism, which primarily determine the shape, character, and individual peculiarities of the adult organism. In the young plant, the full development of such characters takes place only through interaction with the external world, and not unless certain necessary conditions are fulfilled. Thus, if the plant is deprived of nourishment, it finally dies of hunger while vital activity and growth are only possible in the presence of water and within certain limits of temperature. It is evident that the absence of any one of the necessary conditions must invalidate the remaining ones, so that if the amount of water is insufficient, or if the temperature sinks too low, the vital activity of the organism is depressed or completely arrested, and similarly at a high temperature death ultimately supervenes. Hence, physiology is primarily required to determine the powers and possibilities of individual organs and cells and their various interactions. The manifestations of life, when traced back to their ultimate origin, are always found to originate in the protoplasm, an undifferentiated mass of which constitutes the substance of the simplest living elementary organism. Hence, one of the tasks of physiology is to throw light on the manner in which the inherent nature of the protoplasm is responsible for the chemical and physical changes to which it gives rise. It is as impossible to picture a regular continuance of life otherwise than by the cooperation of different organs and biological elements as it is to imagine a watch which could still keep time after the removal of certain of the wheels. The chemical nature of the living organism, with its indissolubly connected chemical and mechanical properties, is of much greater importance than that of a machine. For in the changes which take place in the self-regulating protoplasmic mechanism, chemical nature and affinities are, in all cases, of fundamental importance. Hence, progress in physiology necessarily goes hand-in-hand hand with progress in chemistry. From a physiological standpoint, it is hardly possible, for example, to overestimate the importance of a complete knowledge of the chemical constitution of the proteids, which take so prominent a part in building up the living protoplast, especially in view of the possibility that each particular species may be characterized by a specific variety of living protein. There is no reason for regarding life as the product of an extraordinary and mystical natural force. It is to be treated simply as a special and peculiar manifestation of energy. Moreover, since we can only guess at the evolutionary history of the organism, 
it is only possible for us to deal with the physiological and other properties which it now possesses. And however clearly we may be able to explain the peculiarities of a given plant as being due to characters and tendencies inherited from its parents, we shall still be unable to determine with certainty the evolutionary origin of that particular species. The production and hereditary transmission of variations are connected in many ways with the general physiological problems with which we are immediately concerned. When any variation takes place, an alternation in the structure or nature of the protoplast must have previously occurred. Provided the variation is not merely a temporarily induced one, but is one capable of hereditary transmission to the offspring. This is true for the lowest as well as the highest plants. And whether the variation is perpetuated by sexual or asexual reproduction. The conclusion that a change of this kind necessarily indicates an alteration in the arrangement or character of the protoplasmic constellation is indeed a logical necessity, even though it is impossible to determine exactly how the given variation arises or is induced. The reproduction of hybrid forms is evidently due to the combination of two different kinds of living substance. There can be no doubt that if it were possible to interchange the nuclei of two separate and distinct protoplasts, assuming that the strange nuclei and protoplasts could live and grow together, two new organisms would be produced differing from one another and from the original protoplast. These special characteristics of the new organisms would be preserved so long as the union and cooperation between the parts of the new protoplast were maintained. This would also be the case if, for example, a bacterium existed in intimate and permanent symbiotic union with the protoplast, as a chloroplastid does, and were transmitted from generation to generation in the ovules. It is, as a matter of fact, not inconceivable that the existence of certain species as such depends upon protoplastic or symbiotic unions of similar character to the above. Nor is the possibility excluded that the tiny symbiont might be too small to be visible or might be unable to continue an independent existence outside of the protoplast. Comparatively recently, lichens were regarded as distinct organisms although we now know that they are the products of a synthetic union of two distinct plants, and that by the artificial synthesis of various algae and fungi, in new forms or forms similar to those already known may be produced with relative ease. Nevertheless, as is well known, variation capable of hereditary transmission may arise without the help of foreign protoplasm, and certain bacteria afford especially instructive examples of these. Thus, in many bacteria, the power of forming either spores or certain metabolic products may be inhibited by a particular mode of treatment, and in some cases this inhibition is permanent, so that even under normal cultural conditions a reversal never takes place. The variety thus produced will hence remain constant in a neutral environment, although there always remains the possibility that, by the action of other agencies, a return to the original condition may be induced. Accidental reversions are, as is well known, by no means uncommon in the higher plants. Saltatory variations often do appear in organisms, 
and may arise under precisely similar external conditions in particular individuals only, or may even affect these in different manner or degree. It has previously been stated that physiology must necessarily seek an explanation of all vital processes in the developmental and formative powers of the protoplast. Our knowledge on this point is still in its infancy, and we must be content if we can gain here and there a glimpse into the internal protoplasmic mechanism. Even though our knowledge with regard to the structure of protoplasm were to be enormously increased, we should still see not the causes and forces which are acting, but only the results which they produce. The most perfect mental picture of the plant or of the protoplast must necessarily fail to reveal the hidden and invisible causes which make it assume its specific form. Above all, it must be remembered that the simplest protoplast is an organism of very complex structure and that its various activities result from the interactions of its component parts and organs. The particular result which any given cause produces is due to the special nature of the given protoplast. Every plant must therefore necessarily have certain special protoplasmic characteristics which are peculiar to it alone. At the same time, protoplasts of similar origin may temporarily or permanently acquire special properties by a progressive differentiation of labor and by adaptation to special aims and purposes. Nevertheless, the plant protoplast, so long as it remains living, retains all the general features which characterize a typical vegetable cell. In order to attain certain ends, the organism forms parts which are not living or capable of life. One such organ is the cell wall which the protoplast constructs as a protective mantle in which it may live and work. Indeed, the protoplast living inside its cell wall may be compared to a snail in its shell. In certain cases, the protoplasmic contents may escape from the cellulose investment as a naked swarm spore, which later may build for itself a new domicile. In the protoplast, just as in a snail, the internal structure and functional importance of the component parts require to be studied. Within the protoplast are spaces having considerable functional value, which are surrounded by living substance, but whose contents are not living. Such are the vacuoles, which subserve a variety of functions. They may serve for the storage of reserve food material, while the dissolved substances which they contain give rise to the osmotic properties of the cell and preserve these properties during growth. As the vacuoles increase in size, the cell becomes much larger, but the amount of protoplasm which it contains undergoes no increase, or but little, so that finally it is reduced to a thin primordial utricle, or bag, closely adpressed to the cell wall and containing a single large central vacuole. Vacuoles are laboratories in which food may often be digested or building material prepared for use, while at the same time they are utilized in translocation. The body of the protoplast, the protoplasm as we may call it, is built up of organs and elemental structures. The nucleus is an organ of very general importance, and indeed, a separation into nucleoplasm, karyoplasm, and cytoplasm probably occurs in all protoplasts. On the other hand, chromatophores, including chlorophyll, 
corpuscles, are organs of special character and are absent from fungi. When such special organs are present, they may be given the general name of plastids. Like all living substance, the plasmatic organs are of considerable complexity. This is readily perceptible in the resting nucleus and is admirably shown when the latter divides. While the chromatin fibers, which are then so markedly visible, may also be seen to have a definite structure of their own. Besides the plastids already mentioned, the cytoplasm may contain minute bodies, often in great numbers, which, regardless of their morphological and physiological nature, may be termed microsomes or microsomata. They may be composed in some cases of non-living substance, but in other cases may be minute living plastids. In a small cell, or one of the organs of such a cell, the component units must necessarily be still smaller, and yet have positive dimensions. While the smaller and more numerous these units are, the more varied and complicated will the possible combinations be. At the same time, a relatively greater surface area is correlated with the smaller size, and this is a factor of the utmost importance. For bacteria teach us what remarkable powers are conferred by extreme minuteness, and what extraordinary processes it renders such organisms capable of performing. The various operations which are continually going on in the body of the plant involve the execution of a considerable amount of work. This is very evident in the enormous development of a large tree from the relatively small seed. Such a process of construction has involved the preparation of a vast quantity of highly complex material from very simple chemical substances. The process is incident to life also, though they may not lead directly to the formation of such substances, cannot be conducted without involving a considerable amount of work, whether the plant is a minute body consisting of a single protoplast or an organism of a much higher degree of complexity. If we turn now to consider the sources of the plant's energy, continues J. Reynolds Green in his Introduction to Vegetable Physiology. It is evident that they must be, in the first instance, of external origin. The radiant energy of the sun, indeed, is the only possible source which can supply it to normal green plants. The rays which emanate from the sun are generally alluded to as falling into three categories. Those of the visible spectrum, those of the infrared, and those of the ultraviolet. The second of these are frequently spoken of as heat rays, and the last as chemical. The greatest absorption of energy appears to take place in consequence of the peculiarities of chlorophyll. This substance, whether in the plant or when in solution in various media, absorbs a large number of rays in the red and in the blue and violet regions of the spectrum, together with a few others in the yellow and the green. The solar spectrum, after the light has passed through a solution of chlorophyll, is seen to be robbed of rays in these regions, and hence to present the appearance of a band of the different colors crossed by several dark bands. The greater part of the energy so obtained in the cells which contain the chloroplasts is at once expended, partly in constructing carbohydrate food materials and partly in evaporating the water of transpiration, the latter process being much the more expensive. Speaking of these carbohydrate food materials, H. M. Richards says, It is evident that the starch, which is the first substance that we readily recognize, 
is not the first substance which is formed. Modern research points more and more to the conclusion that it is the simplest of carbohydrates that is produced, a substance known as formaldehyde. But what is especially interesting is that it seems not impossible that this primal reaction may not, after all, be a function of the living protoplasm, but a chemical reaction that can be carried on outside the cell through the agency of chlorophyll. It is in the further elaboration of this first substance formed that the living protoplasm is apparently necessary. At any rate, we know that the energy demanded for the process must be afforded by the particular rays of sunlight which the chlorophyll absorbs. There is plenty of evidence, continues Green, of the power of plants to avail themselves of the heat rays. Not only can the air rob the plant of heat by radiation, but when its own temperature is high, it can communicate heat to it in turn. Indeed, its absorption by the leaves would be a source of considerable danger to the plant were it not for the cooling effect of transpiration, which dissipates 98% of it during bright sunshine. No doubt this dissipation is one of the chief benefits secured by transpiration. It is evident, however, that in the general economy of the plant, something further must be at work in connection with the supply of energy. The absorption of these external forms must take place at the exterior of the plant, while many of the processes of expenditure are carried out in parts which are more or less deep-seated. We are obliged to turn our attention, therefore, in this connection, as in that of the construction and utilization of food, to processes of accumulation, distribution, and economy. What is the immediate fate of the energy absorbed? It enters the plant in what is known as the kinetic form. A very considerable part of the kinetic energy of the sun's rays, we have already seen, is devoted at once to the evaporation of the water of transpiration. But some of it is employed by the chloroplast to construct some form of carbohydrate. The energy so applied can be again set free by the decomposition of this formed material. If the latter were burned, its combustion would be attended by the evolution of a certain definite amount of heat. This heat would represent the energy that had been applied to the construction of the material so burned. Any accumulation of material in the body of the plant represents, therefore, not only a gain of weight or substance, but a storage of energy. This has disappeared from observation during the constructive processes, but can be liberated again during their decomposition and applied to other purposes. Energy which has thus been accumulated and stored is known as potential energy, to distinguish it from the actual or kinetic energy originally absorbed. The formation of material in the plant, therefore, involves a storage of energy in the potential form and wherever such material is found, there is in it an amount of energy which can be liberated with a view to utilization at any point to which the material has been transferred. The protoplasm itself contains a store of such potential energy. It can only be constructed at the expense of food supplied to it. The formation of the protoplasm, which follows the supply of food to the cell, involves work and the energy so used is partly changed from the kinetic to the potential condition. When the protoplasm undergoes what we have called its self-decomposition, which is continually taking place, a certain amount of this potential energy is liberated and can be observed and measured in various ways. 
When destructive metabolism is active, there is usually a rise of temperature, as in the processes of the germination of seeds. A certain amount of the liberated potential energy, in this case, manifests itself in the form of heat. A vegetable cell, which obtains no direct radiant energy from without, can, consequently, obtain the energy it needs from within itself by setting up decomposition, either of its own substance or of certain materials which have been accumulated within it. The transformation of potential into kinetic energy is associated with decomposition, just as the converse process is bound up with construction. Destructive metabolism in the cell is then the means by which its energy is made available. The processes of this catabolism go on in the interior of each cell. Each liberates at least as much energy as it requires for the maintenance of its life and the discharge of its particular functions. The processes associated with the utilization of the stored energy are, then, chemical decompositions in which various constituents of the cell are involved. These are of two kinds, in the first of which the protoplasm itself takes part, and which comprise the processes in which its own breaking down takes place. In the second, it affects the splitting up of other bodies without a necessary disruption of its own molecules. Respiration is to be looked upon as a process very largely connected with the utilization of the store of energy, which each cell possesses, and perhaps primarily to be concerned in the transformation of that energy from the potential to the kinetic form. The oxygen appears to be necessary mainly for the purpose of exciting those decompositions of the protoplasm which are so dependent upon its instability. End of section 27. Recording by Melanie Young.